I was 40 or 41 the first time I actually learned to cry and know that that was okay. I had never let emotions, um, I had never felt emotions to the point that they would have that kind of impact on me. I would very much clamp down on them and make it a logical, here's how you process grief. Here's how you process anger, even anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but anger, grief, hurt, all of those different emotions in learning to feel them and then learning to control them. Hey guys, welcome back into How's That Working For You, a podcast about uh, the Enneagram and recovery and whatever else we can uncover today. And we're always uh, looking for some help, some hope and humor. Why do we look for help, hope and humor? I got to tell you, people ask, so I'm going to tell you. Years ago, one of my favorite teachers did a podcast and they always said they wanted to include some help and some hope in there. And I loved that. And I said, one day if I ever do a podcast, it's going to be about help and hope. But because I'm a seven and you have to have more, I added a third word and it's humor, which I think reflects the three parts actually of the ancient teaching of the Enneagram, the three centers, head, heart, and gut. So we have help, hope, and humor. I'll let you place those where you want to. In the studio today, we have my good friend, Adam Fines. Good morning, Adam. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thanks for coming in. You've been under the weather lately, hadn't you? I have. It's been a, it's been a interesting month. Um, had a, got COVID at the end of January. I uh, spent about a week sick. Um, and then the couple of weeks after, kind of really just l- real low energy. You know, not a whole lot. Yeah, because you wouldn't come play pickleball, which really upset me because <laughs> – we always have three and we need four, four, and then you people won't fulfill what I need <laughs> and just because you're sick. So, you know, I don't know what to make of you. Um, and I had about a week there where I felt really good, and then uh, one of the kids got sick, picked up a bug at school, and then I got sick. So I've spent the last week sick again. Okay. So, All right, I'm going to give you a pass then on the pickleball right now. So I expect you out there next week. Should be close next okay. week, maybe the one yeah. after. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming in, and I want to tell folks a little bit about our relationship. We met about 12 years ago. Both of us had been in recovery for a while, and then we kind of crossed paths inside of a local church that did a recovery ministry and eventually ended up in the same church uh, probably a year or so later. Does that sound about right? Uh, it had been about about two years because when it first started, I followed over to the other church. Yeah. And I yeah, stayed there for a right. year before I... And then you saw the light and figured out you needed to come where I was, right? Yes. Okay, absolutely. Good. Great. Well, good start. Good Good job. All right. So um, we, um, and we both had similar past, but they diverged a little bit. Both of us at, at some time in our life had struggled with substance abuse. Uh, For me, I was able to get away from that uh, in my early 30s, but then the one that was underneath that kept going, that was hidden, that was more destructive was what I would just term sexual addiction. So we both have been on somewhat similar paths. We both have, uh, I think, been um, helped and transformed in 12-step communities, right? And then we became friends along the way as we began, you know, continuing to work our program. And we both, I think, had different leadership roles along the way within that community as well. Uh, and then uh, a few years ago, we were able to be in a group together. Uh, what I think maybe was the first in Birmingham, I think, possibly, was a synergy of the 12 steps and a deep knowledge of the Enneagram. 
You remember that? Absolutely. Yeah, we got to, we got to do it right before the pandemic shutdown, right? right and did for so. Um, tell us what uh, enneagram type you identify with. So I identify as a type six okay. uh, with a pretty strong five wing. Okay. Yeah. As, as a matter of fact, when we first started talking about it a few years ago, I think you were thinking more uh, home spaces type five. Yeah. Right. And then the more we talked about, it, the more you read, and the more you did your own work, it kind of became apparent. Well, maybe no, maybe I have a deep uh, part in type five, but maybe more of how my design was shows up in type six. Yeah, it's I very much see like if I if I take the test, the various tests that are out there, about half come up with a five and half come up with a six. Yeah, um, the the behaviors are very heavily five driven. Um, if you look at just behavior it very much looks like a five uh the more time i spend though working and digging into the motivations ah it's the motivation uh of this and the anxiety of the six okay good yeah and that's really important that you mentioned that because outward behavior does not always reveal type that's where we get confused sometimes and it's finding out what as you said what's the core motivation what's the basic fear what's what is the thing i want to avoid the most really is at the heart of how tight where type shows up right it's not that we were created that way it's as a matter of fact is that we were created in a sense in an opposite way for instance to the anxiety of the six when we're created really we're created as someone who has a deep inner abiding peace but things happen to us along the way and we move away from that toward the anxiety of the six that uses their mental capacity to try to anticipate what could go wrong and always be on kind of a hypervigilance. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, where, where have you experienced the hypervigilance in, uh, in your life? The, uh, ooh. Where have you not experienced that? Exactly. I mean, yeah. being, um, I do have OCD. Yep. That's one of those very, a lot of anxiety, um, so that's a very much a six straight. Yep. Uh, and that I'm you know, very aware of the anxiety and stuff. I know it. I feel it. So where you know, I think fives tend to not be as aware of the anxiety that's driving a lot of the stuff. Yeah, fives can escape so well into their inner resources and into their kind of mastery of research and going deeper and deeper. It has this ability to kind of, as you said, cover over a lot of their anxiety. Yeah. Everything becomes very, very logical. Yeah. And I can do that. I mean, it's one of those things that I do do. Um, with six, it's the, is you know, the loyalist aspect yeah. that uh, over the years I would stay in relationships that are very, very unhealthy. I would stay at jobs where very, very unhealthy for both me, you know, for me, um, out of that, the fear of I need the security, I need the relationship to maintain me, I need the structure or the system. Yeah. And there's so much fear of I can't get out of this. Yeah. That this out here is too abstract. I can't go there. Yeah. And it's not and, safe. I don't know. Yeah. And and for most sixes I know, or have worked with, or friends with, or even in some of the classic literature of Enneagram work, the paradox for them that causes this great tension and anxiety in them is they, they are wired to be loyal, but at the same time, they're constantly thinking, I should not be loyal to this team or this 
theology or to this leader or whatever, because I think they're going to, at some point, they've got to betray me in some way. So I got to keep my eyes open for this, but yet I don't want to be disloyal. Right. Right. Which sets up this huge tension. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And so the tension, if not dealt with well, uh, generally leads to things like you're talking about a constant anxiety, a hypervigilance, even, even in your case, uh, manifest in a physical thing, a mental and physical and emotional and OCD, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what has your work, uh, tell me a little bit, tell the audience a little bit how some of your work either in the 12-step principles or uh, with the synergy of the Enneagram overlay, how has that made you more aware of some of these things and, and if the awareness is helping any? Yeah, so it's... I found, you know, the Enneagram side in particular, I have found extremely helpful in separating mind from body. Okay. Tell um, us more. Because that is one of the hardest parts for me with anxiety is I get stuck in this loop of I'm worried about something. It doesn't really matter what it is. Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Yeah, most sixes tend to have this dwelling in the past uh, in the sense that what did I do wrong or what decision did I make that is irreparably harmed me or somebody I love. Right. And they're constantly thinking about that. How is there any way to go back and correct that, which scares them from making decisions to go forward? Is that, is that your experience? Yes, yes. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's like, well, I did this or I said this wrong or I made this mistake and now I'm going to be fired and my whole world is going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And it's going to destroy all of my relationships. And you know, for you know it, you're in the gutter. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And getting out of that, I mean, it's it's a problem in the head of how I think, and it keeps looping over and over. And you know, it really doesn't work to say, "Hey, brain, stop." Good. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> that just doesn't doesn't work. Uh, of learning to step out and separate. Uh, you know, I guess different people would find different things, meditation, exercise, whatever it takes to step away from that, focus on the body and what I'm feeling and learn to calm down, which lets the logical side slowly reset itself. That's a great way of describing it. And you, a minute ago, you said something I, I've had to learn how to separate the mind and the body in a, in a, in a sense, right? Yeah. And this idea of, uh, Often the constriction in the physical body just keeps us in the loop. Is, is that make, is that what your experience? It just keeps looping you back in to the anxiety and then one just keeps driving the other. Right. It's a yeah. feedback and it's something I'm so unaware of the emo, the emotional and physical side. And so, and that's where a lot of the five comes in is I very much can live in my head. Yeah. Of that's a very real world to me. Um, and learning to get out of that into the actual real world and feel good. Yeah. And so oftentimes uh, it's what it sounds like you're saying is that when you realize that you had to be aware of what was going on in your body, slow down and separate that from the mind that until you are aware of that, you couldn't actually accept it and then take any action toward beginning to let the body slow down or heal. So the mind could follow. Is that, does that right. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and learning too, one of the, most important things I think I learned for me was a lot of times with meditation, it's one of those you close your eyes and you build this scene to relax. That doesn't work for me because okay. I live in the head. And that's, yeah. I think, very much part of 6-5. That's a great okay. point because uh, essentially often what we're trying to do over and over again is double down 
on the center that we overuse anyway. In, in other words, as a seven, you, as you're, a, you're a fellow head type, mental type. Our tendency is to unconsciously all of our life overuse the mental function to survive, right? right. To protect ourselves or to promote ourselves or to plan or whatever, okay? And so then when something comes like you're talking about with anxiety, we, we actually unconsciously then double down on the headspace thinking that'll work. Right? Although I say thinking that, it's really unconscious. Right. It was for me all of my life. So we're doubling that. It's in, in recovery, they would just call that stinking thinking, right? Black and white thinking. Um, you know, how's that working for you? Well, it's not, but, you know, the first 99 times it didn't work, but I'm pretty sure the 100th time it will. I'm just going to double down on what I've already done. And the old Einstein thing, the paraphrase of the same thinking that got you into this mess isn't going to get you out. Is that so? Is that is that what you're trying to talk about the yeah. the idea of getting away from using the mental capacity uh, to heal? Right. Okay. Yeah, it's, I I think you know there's there's a lot of value in understanding and knowing how I think and doing it, but in the middle of the problems that I can't fix it that way. Yeah. I have to learn to feel the body and learn to relax and learn to feel the real world and actually understand the emotions I'm feeling not logically what they mean. Ooh, that's good because us mental types tend to talk a lot about feelings, but we don't feel them right. very well. One of my learning curves in 12-step, uh, early step study, get into step four, and they start talking about you're going to have to feel the feelings. In fact, you're probably going to have to go back and feel some feelings. You're going to need help with that because it gets overwhelming. Uh, did, did you ever have to go through any of that? Yes. I mean, it was the... I would say, you know, as as an adult, I was 40 or 41 the first time I actually learned to cry and know that that was okay. I had never let emotions, um, I had never felt emotions to the point that they would have that kind of impact on me. I would very much clamp down on them and make it a logical, here's how you process grief. Here's how you process anger, even anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but anger, grief, hurt all of those different emotions is in learning to feel them and then learning to control them because that got to be very, very difficult is I was so, I would say good. Good's not really the right word I want to use there. I was so good at suppressing the feelings of yeah. anger. Yeah. You're so practiced at it. Right. Uh, that, yeah. The old practice makes permanent. <laughs> so we got to repractice in a different way. That once I learned to start feeling it, well, now it, here it is. Yeah. What do I do with it? And I don't know how to control it in a healthy way. Yeah. How do I feel it and not let it out? Do you think that you can draw somewhat of a line to the the addictive behaviors that went prior to that in the, in the sense of unconsciously not knowing how to deal with all those things? Is that a driver for you? Has it been? Yeah. I mean, I would say that is definitely where addiction started for me. The... Um, the when I first started using uh, substances, it was the discovery that I don't feel these things anymore. I don't mm-hmm. have to feel this anxiety. I don't have to feel this fear. I don't have to feel this anger. It just it hides it. It makes it go away. And you know, it's it, it doesn't fix it. It doesn't help. Right. The anxiety, but it itself. does work at a level. Right. Right. It does, it does work at one level. It, it does something we want it to do. We feel okay maybe right. for a short period of time. I don't have to feel this stuff. I can function better. 
because yeah. I don't have to feel this stuff. Yeah, that's the other great lie that comes yeah. in. Oh, and I can function better with this. Until I couldn't. Until I, yeah, it works until it doesn't. Right. And then yeah. it wasn't a choice anymore. There you go. I think that's one thing that sometimes it's hard for folks that haven't really struggled with deep addiction of any nature, whether it's substance, behavior, a person, whatever it is, that it's harder to relate to the fact that uh, in the beginning it was a choice, it worked, and then later it wasn't much of a choice anymore. Right. It, it very much became, it wasn't a choice of if I'm going to use or not, it was a choice of how far am I going to lower my standards to be able to. Ooh, that's a big one. Because uh, if you're like me, there were things in the beginning when I'm using, whether it's substance or behavior, I said, well, I'll go this far, but I would never go there. And then eventually I found myself going there and then saying, well, I won't go further than that. And eventually I found myself going much further than that. So what were uh, drug of choice? Uh, So I was uh, benzos and opiates. Okay. Well, okay. So there's an interesting combo right there, but it, uh, people may be amazed to know that in the last 10 to 15 years and currently that is actually a combo that is chosen by lots of, I say chosen people drift into and end up with, but, but that's interesting because in a sense, they're almost opposites in one way. So talk a little bit about what you get from an opiate and what you get from a benzo. So a large part of mine was opiates were kind of that bridge. Um, I started on benzos. Uh, it was for treating anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so prescribed? Yes. Okay. Yeah. A lot of it starts with prescription. Doesn't mean that's wrong, but a lot of that starts that way. And, you know, took it for years, dose escalation, because as the body adjusted, you know, the anxiety would come back up in various combinations. And I was pretty functional for about six, seven years. Um, using, and that was just benzos. Um, I, I say just functioning. I was really, I would say, you know, the first maybe year and a half, two years after that was already well into, Yeah, it wasn't a choice anymore. I just didn't know it. And it's not like your career path, your jobs per se, were kind of like where you could just show up and uh, do some, whether it was like manual labor or uh, certain tasks that might be relatively easy without a high mental function, but uh, describe what you were trained to do, what you're gifted at, and what you do. Uh, I'm a programmer. Yeah, and not just a programmer, but a designer of and helper with other people that do projects as well, right? Yeah, yeah. help architect applications and build applications. Yeah, yeah. So that's not something you just show up and do, right? Um, no, it's not. It's uh, but it's also a field where, you know, a lot of us in technology have quirks. You know, really quirky personalities. Um, and so there's a lot of behaviors that can at times be accepted that wouldn't otherwise be. Mm. Uh, we, you know, like I don't tend to have working hours other than you know, hey, you know, you've got to be available between nine and three for meetings. So kind of can choose your own hours because it's not a being a creative type thing, it's not really a you got to produce X amount today. You've got to produce this project in this time frame. And then you figure out how you work as an individual and as a team to kind of produce that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were functioning at it even while using right. for a while. Yeah. And it actually, for a long while, it actually, because of anxiety, you know, I was actually functioning because it allowed me to concentrate. I didn't have, I wasn't constantly getting tore away 
it would help kind of tamp down that anxiety. So in a, in a sense, the what we would tend to think as a negative with anxiety for a while actually was a way f- that you focused. Yeah. Yeah. But my guess would be from a physical standpoint, uh, human beings are not meant to live a long time in anxiety. So probably some chemical changes going on in the body, a lot of cortisol maybe being introduced to. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. And I would also say that it's um, – my I used work as another method of escape away from the world. It was a way away from anxiety and relationships and that type of stuff because, I, you know, I would work 16, 17 hours a day and think nothing of it because, you know, that was, that was who I was. That was what I was, and that's all I was. Um, so I managed, you know, working 16 hours a day, I managed to function. Mm-hmm. fairly well and then uh, after about seven years I had to have my gallbladder out and that was where opiates got introduced again prescribed again prescribed yeah it was just yeah. you know post-op yeah and folks I want to just stop for a second because uh, if you're hearing what we're talking about you may think that uh, Adam and I or I are blaming physicians uh, for prescribing opiates for things, and we are not. However, I think it's become apparent, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, that for a long time uh, we were blindly and unawaredly, hopefully, prescribing powerful opiates for things uh, without much thought to the addictive nature of them and or should the person being prescribed be allowed to take them on their own or in what doses or how long or how long were you prescribing for? And we're just now starting to dig out of that in this country in that second wave of opiate addiction. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no, no, no yeah. worries. Yeah, and I'm absolutely not blaming the physicians right. whatsoever. Yeah, this was, yeah. <laughs> this one's on me. That was just, that, that was how I ended up in the situation with it, with the level of anxiety I was dealing with. I just happened to start. I mean, it could have been alcohol. It, you know, there's no telling. I, and I, I and, and there's a fair amount of pain. Uh, gallbladder surgery is one of the tougher ones, right, in terms of the aftermath. Yeah, and it was, um, it was, it was scoped, so not as bad. It used to be a really bad, mm-hmm. you know, big open. But even, you know, the post-op of even the scope is very uncomfortable. It's yeah. just not as uncomfortable for as long yeah. as the old method was. Yeah. And... The, the combination of taking those together is kind of what pushed me over the edge and started me down the hill to hit the bottom about three years after that. Yeah. What was bottom like for you? Oh, man. The, uh, th- there's a couple of years that are just almost like blank. They're just not there. Yeah. I remember when you were doing some step work, you talked about that a lot trying to do some inventory work and trying to figure out, is there somebody I'd really go need to repair stuff with? Yeah. And you're like, I can't remember. Can't it's remember. that bad. And yeah. And for a six, five, that is terrifying. Yes. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. Like, right. You, you've even, tell me if I'm wrong about this. You shared over the years about dreams that you would have where these situations is, did I, uh, do something back at that. Did I not turn the oven off or uh, there, there's a, there's a wreck and I've killed somebody and I just don't know it or. Right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then all of that fuels in to the anxiety. I mean, it's uh yeah. Or, you know, I spent a lot of time, one of my struggles with OCD, I mean, for a long time, I had a really hard time driving. 
and because there was some fear that you had done something or would do something right that, yeah you know I, i'm gonna hit a pedestrian or i'm gonna hit yeah. somebody on a bike and it, it just it happened one day i'm driving home from work i go to turn on and you know kids on bikes coming off of a trail out of the woods just out of the ditch out into the road they never even looked mm. and you know the body reacts to that obviously in the moment yeah. a lot of terrifying fear and i think you know, when it comes to OCD, of what it's like um, living with it is, I think everybody could relate to, you know, I had somebody pull out in front of me, or I've had somebody, you know, I've had something happen, or a, a deer run out in front of me and it hit the brakes real hard. Yeah, and what happens know, to the body at that the moment? Body, how yeah. tense you get in the heart, where you can feel the heart pounding. And you're, you're kind of saying a lot of your existence is kind of like that. Kind of like that. Like with, yeah. with OCD, something can happen and hit, and that's the way I feel. Yeah. I'm sitting in my living room couch thinking, what What if I hit somebody? Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel in that moment. Yeah. My body reacts that way yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Like I can feel the adrenaline dump and the heart rate going. And Yeah. It's just like it's real. Right. And in a sense, it is real for the body. The, uh, the, the famous book, The Body Keeps the Score and all the depth they know about that now. Right. Yeah. And not being able to ever find closure around those type of situations. Yeah. The feedback loop keeps going. Keeps going. Which I is. Never can close it. As you said, I mean, you could, people out there listening can imagine that would be one of those things that might get somebody into an addictive behavior and keep them there uh, because it, okay, well, these kind of seem to work a little bit. I'm not experiencing that as much or to that level as much. Right. right? Yeah. So quick question. Uh, I think I know the answer to this one. Um, Did the struggle, for instance, with the fear of driving, did that ever cause uh, any problem in relationships? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Short answer is yes. Yes. Yeah. Talk about that a little to the extent you feel comfortable. Yeah. That would be a question to ask my wife. Well, we'll get Christy out. We're going to get Christy out <laughs> here. On a, she has a really beautiful recovery story as well. And uh, she, as you said, she, she would identify as an ego type four. And then you guys have that wing together from six into five and four into five. And there's kind of a mystery there about that. Uh, so she's got a lot of stories to tell, too. Uh, if she were here, what might she say? We'll give her a rebuttal, okay, when she comes in. What might she say about how that brought up conflict in a relationship? Because I mean, riding in a car with me was miserable. But especially in the early years before I really started working, you know, it was we talked about, you know, kind of hitting bottom there. Uh, you know, I reached a point where really hard to kind of stay employed. Um, me and Christy kind of met right there at the same time at, at the bottom at the bottom both of you still using in your various ways right and the joke we tell in recovery is that we all walk around with a card on our head that says hey i'm unhealthy you unhealthy too let's get together and have children right, right. yeah yeah that's a part of y'all's story right right it absolutely yeah. is yeah um it's uh very looking back through that time period it is amazing that we made it yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's a very awesome story. It's a story for a different day. Yeah. Uh, we'll, like, we'll, yeah. we'll get her up or both of you. How yeah. about that? Yeah. Yeah. So there, it got to be, it got to a point to where just driving, just to go to work and come home was adding an extra two and a half, three hours to my day. You know, that's time away. And, and at this point we had young kids. I mean, we had kids in daycare. 
we both work together. We're about 45 minutes from the house. So there's, you know, 45 minute driving time in there. But I would get stuck in this loop of if I backed out of a parking spot, what if there was somebody behind me? What if I hid something? So pull forward and look, then repeat, and then drive around the parking lot and drive halfway out. And Make turn sure you and didn't hit back. somebody. <laughs> and that started out as, you know, here was one check, and then here were three, and then here was 10 minutes, and here was 45 minutes on both ends of the the commute. And, you know, that added a lot of stress onto Christy, who now, you know, had to go get the kids and had to go had to go get the kids and make the dinner and get everything in place while I'm working late. When yeah. in reality, I'm driving around the parking lot in a circle for 45, 50, 60 minutes. Yeah. So some, so some resentment came out inside the marriage, marriage about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And then it would happen on, you know, as we got home, it's like, well, I would drive down the road. Well, I have to go back and look. And then you can, uh, we can ask her how she feels about me having the constant reassurance that was having to be given. Yeah. When we're driving. So, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just wondering then, um, as you got sober and then continued to try to do, you know, the kind of growth work, the inner work that the 12 step calls for sobriety is one thing, emotional and inner sobriety is a totally different thing to begin to build. And you had shared earlier about, okay, now I'm, I'm coming into contact with this strange system called the Enneagram and I kind of found my spot there. And it began to explain some things to me. What are some ways that it began to kind of help the twelve step or help help your recovery, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. So with the obviously with the twelve step work, you know, it kind of laid out the framework. I mean, you know, it's it, it's not magical. It, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it, you know, especially for someone. Uh, with a very logical mindset, it's a very much. Hey, here's the checklist. Here's the here's the instruct the the map. Yeah, I can follow these. Yeah. yeah, logical. It's like a lot of a lot of non twelve step programs. When you really look at them, they're twelve step programs. They, they don't follow it the same way. They don't yeah. do things exactly the same way or in the same order. But it's the same principle. You know? Yeah, the idea of awareness right. first, then some sense of acceptance yeah. of reality, and then accept. Yeah. And then what kind of action do I and need to take? Accept yeah. what I did and start trying to understand why I do it. Yeah. Go repair things. Yes. Big deal. Yeah. Best I can. Yeah. And then build this pattern of aware, reaction, repair, yeah. and living life yeah. becomes a daily thing. And then you take that out to the world and help somebody who's still there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... Uh, when I first got introduced to Enneagram and started reading and studying with it, you know, it started opening up. I would say it is very much a tool that opens the blind spots, which is one of the hardest things when in, in a recovery program is here's all these things I do that I see. Mm-hmm. Here's all the things that everybody else can see. And here's the things I'm blind too, and the things that everybody's blind to because yeah. it's completely inside. Yeah, and uh, the example would be uh, the Jahari window is drawn to show the, this is what you know about me, and I know about me. This is what I know, but you don't know, right? There's parts you know about me I don't know, but then the fourth one is there's the shadow. Right. There's the box where there are both really 
resourceful things about me I don't yet know and you don't know, and there's these really unresourceful things about me hidden over in the shadow, right? Yeah. And so the work of recovery or the work of sanctification, the work of growth, maturity, however you want to call it, is, is beginning to do the work in the shadow and shrink that and bring the good out and then let go of the things that we were unaware of. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And so you're saying Enneagram kind of helped the, the shadow work, in right. a sense, the 12-step work. Yeah, so with the, with the Enneagram, it, it very much helped me, you know, it started understanding the motivations behind what I do. Yes, I see myself doing this with old, unhealthy relationships. Why, why do I hold on to them this long? Why do I hold on to systems and things and beliefs this long and the Enneagram really helped me start understanding the, the underlying motivations yeah. of why I do that and then started showing me where I'm doing this in a much larger scale in my life. Okay. Now that's interesting. Talk a little bit about that because you could take it from the particular into the larger, right? Right. Yeah. So Talk it, a little it, bit about it becomes this, I do this in relationships and I do this kind of stuff at my job. And then I started, then the Enneagram helped me start understanding the motivation of, you know, the kind of the, the fear of being accepted or that I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, I kind of say, I, I, I kind of grew up living in this kind of belief. Like if I had to describe how I lived my life, it's like, people aren't thinking about you near as much as you think <laughs> they like, are. Yeah. I very much had this feeling like if I go into any situation that I'm on stage and everybody's focused in hyper critiquing what I'm doing. And while I'm doing this, there's a billboard behind me showing what I'm thinking that for them to read. Hmm. Sounds kind of anxious. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and Enneagram's really what helped me start understanding that a lot of the anxiety does get driven from the fact that I think I have to perform, I have to be a certain way, or I have to be perfect, or I'm not going to be accepted. I'm not going to be approved of. I don't get approval. Yeah, almost like it's up to me to be so hypervigilant to scout out everything that needs to be paid attention to or could go wrong, and then it's all up to me. I'm alone in the world about doing And it's interesting about most sixes – they don't. They're not quite aware of it until they start doing their work. But they have an intensity about them that they unconsciously want everybody else to pick up on the intensity to be just as concerned as they are about what could go wrong. Is that does that right, make yeah. any sense? Yeah, that's a that's a that'll wear you out. Yes, and it causes problem in relationships. Relationships, yeah. because it tends to be very pessimistic, almost to the point of cynical. Yeah, that because given a certain situation or you know here's this thing we're going to, here's the thing we're going to do, say, at work, or here's this project we're going to do at home, I can give you a list of 15 things. Here's the things that's going to go wrong. It makes me really good at programming. Yeah. Because. We need people like you when we're going to jump out of an airplane, (laughs) right? We want you to pack our chute. Right. Right. (laughs) We need you on safari, right? Yeah. Because it, it makes me really good at seeing the things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. When you do that in relationships, people don't really appreciate that quite so much. Quite as much, yeah. <laughs> um, because it really it comes across in relationships as the constant questioning of the motivations of others. Yeah, that's good. That um, kind of gets back to that idea that 
the tension for sixes is I, I'm, I'm loyal. I'm built by God to be loyal, yet I'm pretty sure if I stay loyal, something bad's going to happen, Right. which is a constant paradox of tension. It's pushing and pulling all the time, right? Right. Yeah. And with that, it's this, here's this motivation of it, it appears, you know, that I'm, I, I'm always wanting to question the motivations of others. Which, yeah. Know. Sixes are yeah. big. They're the poster children for a projection in the world. It's not that all of us, all types project, right? <laughs> Our shadow onto something or somebody else, right? In an attempt to stop the anxiety. But sixes are kind of like the most practiced of the projection. Right. That's what you're describing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it ends up being that, it starts driving the relational behaviors of, it starts making people, and a good way to say it would be that I'm doing things for other people to meet my own needs. There you go. Yep. Would be how I would say it. Yeah. yeah. When, when a six is in the less resourceful state, the, the less aware or conscious state. We would call it. Yeah, I would say, and, and it's, yeah. it's it's very much an unhealthy sex behavior. Yeah, when when sixes are healthy, man, like we said a little while ago, we need you guys, right? You're the you're the watchman for things, and when you're healthy, you have a proper perspective to that, and it's not that everybody's out to get you, right? Right. The old the old saying for sixes is just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Right. And I love Michael J. Fox. I don't know if he's a six or not. We've talked about it on here before. He has the best statement I give to sixes all the time. I will paraphrase. He said, basically, I, he decided at some point in his life not to keep uh, living over and over in his brain the worst case scenario because on the off chance that one of them happened, then he has to go through it twice. Right. <laughs> so for me, I give that to sixes all the time. I'm like, yes. How could I get that way? Right. And that would be nice not to have to keep reliving them. Yeah. But you're better at it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Slowly yeah. over the years. Slowly getting there. First sobriety, uh, uh, okay, you were able to stop using, right? Yeah. And then that's when the hard work comes. Yes. Living life on life's terms, and Big Book would say, and that's why a lot of people stop. They don't want to go back to the drug or behavior of choice, but now that they're sober, the real hard work stopped. They didn't, we didn't expect that. We thought the hard work was not using. Right. Or not behaving, right? Right. No. Then all of a sudden, it's like, no. How do you live free? Yeah. And, yeah. and there was probably, I mean, from the time I got clean until the realization of how broken I was, that was probably eighteen months. Yeah. yeah. Before it's like, I had gone, I had gotten clean, I started the step work, and then the realization hit of how broken I really am. <laughs> yeah. Man, I'm a mess. <laughs> gotta, yeah. yeah. I thought the problem was using. Right. Yeah. It was using. No, it was all the stuff that got me started using. And kept you in it. And kept me there for yeah. all that time. That's what the problem is. And now how do I deal with that? Yeah. And, you know, slowly but surely, you know, working through the 12-step program, working with sponsors, working with therapists, of taking those small steps yeah. Through the years and then starting, you know, discovering and starting the Enneagram, you know, small steps. Yeah. And it's slowly getting better. Yeah. That's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. I've experienced some of it. I've got to watch some of the growth and watch you struggle through new things coming up and you're like, Okay, I didn't see that. And then and then beginning to try to let those things go and, and continue to work and then become more of who you were created to be. Part of which is 
like a killer bass player, right? <laughs> Is that right? I wouldn't go that far. I do play bass. Yeah. And and you do a lot of uh, tech work with worship teams, song teams, right? Bands and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I do, uh, I do front of house audio engineering, um, do play bass, um, help out with video here and there. Not that great at it. Um, it's one of those I kind of enjoy it, but really what I want, what I love to do, I want to be behind a soundboard for live shows and huh. live, live performance. That's what I love doing. What do you think the appeal of that is for you? Do you have you thought about that? I would say for it, it, it's very much a six five type behavior that I much prefer to be behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love music. I've always loved music. I like music production. Uh, love to play. That's why I play bass. Um, but being behind the soundboard lets me produce music without having to put myself out. Okay. Where everybody can see it. Okay. And I, and I would assume it appeals to the mind that is already systematic in the way like a programmer might be, right? Right. Because programmers have to create, but they're also looking for the bugs. What could go wrong? What's not working right? Like that. Running a soundboard, I would think, is kind of similar. You've got both what's needed, but what, what's out of balance, what could go wrong, where does that need to be tweaked or adjusted? Right. Yeah. yeah. How to, and, and, and that's part of what makes me de- decent at that is that I'm, I'm good at You're seeing. You're focused in. Yeah. I'm focused, and I'm, I'm good at seeing here's the things that can go wrong. Here's, yeah. I, I can make this adjustment now because I see what's going to happen, you know, 20 minutes later. Yeah. And go ahead and, and be ahead of it. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you something then, because as you're describing it, I'm wondering, because you are efficient and proficient at that, and because it does kind of light you up, so you're needed and you're, you're wanted in that and you're good at it, have you ever looked at the idea that, yes, that's a part of the way I was created and it's the way I serve and bless the world, but is it? have you ever noticed a time in your life where you're going, yeah, but you know, I'm wondering if I'm hiding behind that sometimes in terms of the depth of intimacy and relationship, put, as you said, not putting yourself out there. Is that, you ever seen any of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's kind of like the, uh, I think it's kind of like the, yeah, the whole church volunteer thing. If I work in the tech booth, I don't have to be out there during the time. <laughs> yeah, and like we could stay away from emotional connections, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of why, you know, I went from, you know, guitar and bass here to I need to put myself out and make myself uncomfortable because a nightmare scenario for somebody like me is I'm on stage and I make a mistake. Mm. And, but it's okay if I do. And that's part of how, you know, that, that's part of the growth thing of I need to put myself out there. I need to make those mistakes in front of people. That's interesting because uh, in Enneagram theory of personality, one of the things that it would posit is that for type sixes, that when they're not aware and conscious, when they're off-centered, out on the edge, they unconsciously revert to the low side of type three, which is to die, to fail in public would just be death to a three, right? So I can kind of hear that in you when you're saying, when I'm not willing to be present and open to what could happen, then that, that anxiety rises up that what would be worse than being in public and not do something perfectly, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
then you know, looking back, I definitely used um, the used the soundboard as a shield. Yeah, to not have yeah. to, because you know, I, I had I have the connection with a very small group, but I didn't have to be really well known mm. by them or by others. Yeah, because I could use. I've got to do this. Yeah. I can't talk. No, no time to actually relate on an intimate level with you people, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So where along the way in your journey have you either been tricked into or stumbled into kind of these places of intimate connection? Where did that, where does that, has that happened? I mean, obviously you get some, you know, in marriage with Christy. Well, I, I had this, uh, this guy I know invite me to a group of, where we're going to study the 12 strips and the Enneagram together. And they <laughs> just weirdo. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember who that was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but studying through that and realizing how much I use, um, whether it be my job and I'm busy or a soundboard or a guitar as a shield to keep people out of intentionally stepping outside of that to make the connections and to become more fully known. Right. And to really let myself be known by those that I'm working with and those that I'm with because, you know, it was very unhealthy. It wasn't a good way to live. Um, Because really what it's saying is there's only parts of our humanity that are being nurtured. Right. In, a, in an essential part, our heart, our emotional level, the, the ability to form intimate relationships is not being nurtured well. So uh, the other things are progressing, but one central part of humanity is kind of out of balance a little bit. Does that make sense? It's hard for mental type. It's hard for me. Uh, but it's kind of disguised with a seven because people kind of think you're a heart person. Because your <laughs> sevens are just up and energetic and life of the party and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think people, I didn't realize until I started doing a lot of work, till I crashed, and then people began to understand, no, it's, I'm a mental type too. And I was using the mental and the, and the up and over-the-top activity to actually fool myself and other people unconsciously of where the heart deficit was. So I was tricked into sponsorship in 12-step. Okay, they say you got to have a sponsor. I'll get a sponsor. And, I get a sponsor. and what I began to understand over time is I, as I slowly, very slowly began to uh, relax into and accept that this was a place to build intimacy for the first time that was, that was healthy, then that became a part of my story. And I began to understand, you know what, good sponsoring really is teaching people how to find a place to learn how to be intimate with each other in a healthy way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of where, as I've grown working through the Enneagram, that, you know, now, you know, yes, I'm still behind the soundboard. I still love doing it. I enjoy it. But now it's a tool that I can use to help build relationships. Ooh, sweet. One of the, rea- I mean, part of the reality is I'm working with this same group of people week in and week out. It's a chance to get to know people. It's a chance to talk about what's going uh, on. Uh, what, a, what a concept. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, instead of because you know, instead of being you know, around different people, which is also a very good thing to take the time. Hey, I need to be out. I need to be around 
strangers. I need to be around people I don't know. I need to be around people I don't understand and learn to engage and live there. But it's also a great opportunity in this smaller group to build deeper relationships. Again, to be fully known and to know fully. Right. That, that Paul talks about there's one day, one day we're all going to be fully known and know fully, right? In this life, the way it works is we can work toward that. We can relax into that, right? May not ever be perfect, but it can go deeper and deeper, right? Yeah. Big part of our healing, but also a big part of releasing us into the ministry or to the blessing that we're supposed to give back to the world, too. Right. Yeah. And that's really, and and that's where it grew, ultimately, is like, you know, with, especially in, in the church setting where it is with, whether it's sound or you know music, it, it's giving back the gift, the technical gift to be able to do so with the love of the music to help bring others to worship. You know, yeah. that, you know it, it's not about me and about me playing. It's about how do we, how do we as a group now, this group I've come to know, how do we as a group kind of make ourselves disappear so people can worship? Ooh, that's cool. But it's interesting, though, because as a bass player, and I know several people, it's funny about fives and sixes, they seem to be bass players. But we also had Justin Mangerone, who's, who's, he'll pop up on the podcast here, or probably before this one, that uh, is, a, is a nine, but he's in your triad, three, six, nine, but he's a bass player as well. There's something I observe, uh, one of the things I've learned to do is, is pay attention, be intentional about where I put my attention sometimes, when music's being done, whether you call it worship music or just music, however you look at it, is to notice how musicians are lost in their music a little bit or what they're playing. That helps me to get lost in it. Does that make any sense? So when I watch you do that, it seems to me you're more at peace when you do that. Yeah. You're more at home. You're more relaxed. You're more into I don't know what's going on in the head. But outwardly, it helps me relax and worship in a sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I saw that with Justin. I see it with you. I've seen it with other musicians. It's like they're in their own world, and it's like they're centered, harmonized. Everything's working. And sometimes I think as someone who wants to stay in my head so much, it helps me get into my heart and into my body. So thanks for doing that. Does it feel like that to you at all? Um, when I worship, Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that's the making everything go away. I mean, it, it's yeah. No really more. Don't need benzos and opiates anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. As for what's going through the head, it depends on the song. Ah. For a bass player, a lot of times it's one, two, three, four. <laughs> that's all. And just on a loop. Yeah. You know that we used to joke. I don't know if you remember this or not. But back when in the years when we were doing more holistic recovery ministry and which had lots of components right had a large group with every week that had worship had music sometime and we always used to joke in the early years is like the toughest thing in recovery bands is to find a sober bass player i don't know why that was <laughs> we could find a sober i don't what what's the deal with that do you have any clues about that i don't know um, no it was actually i mean so obviously uh, at the church we were at together there yeah. it was Oh, we had the opposite problem. We actually had three bass players. Yeah, that's true. Which yeah. is really hard to find. Well, it took us 10 years to get one, so maybe that's what it was. Uh-huh. I don't... And then three. Uh, and honestly, 
I'm I'm not sure. I mean, because it depends. Like, I mean, I play bass because you know my own, the only time I've had lessons or formal training or formal schooling in music is with theory and drums. Okay. So, but, but drums and bass are similar, right? Very similar. Rhythm, Tell us why. They're they're rhythm instruments. Okay. I mean, and and I think of them as uh of now I think all instruments do this, and I, and I'm fixing to say way beyond what I know about music because I know nothing, but. Uh, drums and bass are amongst those things that I think the body feels a yes. little. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So there's something about connecting to the body with those. Yeah. So I mean that was that was how I ended up with bass was I have a very good feeling for rhythm because being starting as drum with drums mm-hmm. that you know I feel the rhythm and that's the instrument. I mean it's like I can play guitar. It's very mechanical. And that was when I first started playing music again. Um, after I was sober, I mean, first thing I picked up was I went and picked up one of my old guitars, and then um, just tried bass on a whim. And that's and that was when it just clicked. This is my instrument. It's oh, like wow. I'm not playing this instrument. I feel this instrument. It, it's almost like playing you, right? Yeah. Well, that's spiritual. Uh, Paul Simon, I think, said that the uh, the roots of rhythm is the powerful pulsing of love in the veins. Isn't that isn't that a beautiful description of that? That it has its origination in love, in the body, and that the it's this powerful pulsing of love. That's the roots of rhythm. And you talked about rhythm being connected to rhythm. Right. Yeah. Well, everything's rhythmic in the sense of heartbeat, blood flow. Right, the moon, uh, the tides, all that. Everything's about a rhythm in life. It seems that whoever created physical life <laughs> built a rhythm into it, and that we're meant to connect to that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, you know when you, when you talk about it being hard to find bass players. I mean, I think really it comes down to you know where is your early training um, when when you're uh, when you're first starting to pick up music, you know, bass isn't particularly fun. It's not sexy either. A bass does not sound good by itself. Yeah. I mean, if you make a, you can make a bass sound great by itself as a solo yeah. instrument. You can make it sound great, but then you can't hear it when you're with a band. Yeah, that's right. Uh, having that edge on it so that it cuts through. Yeah. Um, but it's really, I think, comes down to, you know, when when you first pick up an instrument that you, you know, you can't show off playing bass. You can't, yeah, you yeah. can't really play songs. You can, I mean, you can pick yeah. them out. They you don't, don't, they don't, you don't headline with the bass. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting even in and of itself. I don't want to, you know, I can make more of things than they really <laughs> are. It's ask my wife, but so the idea of a six Okay, and we all know there's no such thing as a six. It's just a number that represents a character pattern that shows up in the world that is actually the antithesis of how it was created in one sense, okay? But the idea of a six being taking up the base and this whole idea of I'm in the background, but yet I'm part of the basics, it doesn't function well without that part. Does that make sense? Yeah. It anchors. Yeah, it's very much an anchor instrument. Yeah. You know, bass and drums, that's what they do. Yeah. Do you do you have any, like, favorite bass players or anything? Is like, is there a groupie bass club out there or something? <laughs> is there somebody in a group, pastime or current, that you go, you know, I really kind of like the way they do that? Or? Oh, man. Um, James Jamerson, first one that comes to mind, the Motown sound. 
Okay. Um, that, that's a really cool story. If you have any, there's a documentary on Amazon called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Uh, that talks about the Funk Brothers. Okay, yes. And when you go back, and because when you like the Motown label and all of the artists they had over the years and all the popular hits they had, almost all of that was the same band. It was the yeah. same studio band. Yeah, uh, interesting. And James was the bass player on that. Um, well, that's going to make me go back and watch it. I just got finished with Summer of Soul again, so I'm I'm kind of in that mode to go back to that era, so. So, I mean, f- for me, uh, Jeff Ament with Pearl Jam, really big influence uh, for me. I mean, that was, I, you know, that was the era I grew up in. Yeah. Was, you know, with Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, uh, that style of music, and the players there. So, so can I ask you a question? Because, like, um, I don't know much about this, but, like, Switchfoot was kind of considered alt-rock, even grunge to a certain extent. And one of the Foreman brothers was the bass player. Are you familiar with them at all? I'm not. Yeah, I'm just now starting to kind of appreciate them. But they kind of came out of that same area, but they were the next wave of that, uh, post-grunge and that type of thing, yeah. Well, tell me what, um, anything exciting you about life right now? Recovery, Enneagram, bass playing, pickleball? (laughs) Pickleball? (laughs) Man, right now... I am just happy to be sitting here. I'm not coughing. <laughs> I, I'm able to walk up a flight of stairs. Yeah. Um, just really right now, I'm excited about being healthy. Yeah. Uh, and how much. And see how long of, you can stay that way. Right. For, yeah. After being, oh, it's been a rough month, six weeks. Right. So, yeah, just being healthy. So are you glad that the Auburn football season is over? Who? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, folks by now when you hear this they will hopefully heard edward taylor tell his story edward was a recovering heroin addict and we kind of titled the thing what's worse being dope sick or a fan of auburn football last year because it was a it was a tough one right yeah i know you you don't don't even want to be associated i know that's because i'm an alabama fan right but it's weird though with your family though because Chris, you you got this kind of weird Auburny thing that goes with it somehow. And yes, my wife is an Auburn fan. Yeah, uh, fours. What can you say? Right. <laughs> yeah, Edward's a four, right, Ronnie? Oh my gosh, I think we've hit on a clue. Those that that enneagram type that loves darkness and melancholy. They're Auburn. Okay, got it. We got it. We just solved the problem, right? Anybody out there that is an Auburn fan that's not a four, if you'll write in and tell us, then we'll get you on the air. Okay. Which actually for me, I'm an oddball. Yeah. Being from the South in that football is actually not that it's not a big deal to me. Yeah. Um I, I was I grew up being a big Alabama fan, big football fan. And it, it was the point where I realized how Alabama did in a football game dictated mm-hmm. my mood for two, three, four days afterwards. Yeah, but what's your point? I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Oh my gosh, my wife could tell you some stories. When I was sick, oh my gosh, it was bad. It was bad. And that that was when I realized it's like I didn't go to Alabama. <laughs> the next time I coach there will be the first time. I, I, I don't know. Anybody currently at Alabama. <laughs> yeah. But the truth is, uh, it was an Auburn historian that really told the tale, we're still refighting the Civil War with Southern football. I mean, it's true, folks. Come on. We, we think we can win this time, right? 
I still, I mean, I love to watch a good football game. I enjoyed playing it growing up, but I'm just not that big of a football fan. Yeah. Well, that's a big part of 12-step work. You can figure <laughs> out where your identity came from and your ego. And maybe you let, it's character defect. I can let go of some of that maybe for a while, yeah. Well, Adam, thanks for coming up, man. It's great to see you. This is the only way I'm going to get to see you to schedule for the podcast or maybe pickleball soon. I, I think we can get pickleball back on the okay, schedule. Okay, I played last night. I'm limping today. <laughs> first time ever, first time ever. I was the first one to leave. Seriously. You don't believe it, do you? No. I said, I'm tired, guys. I'm going home. And they were all like, what? They didn't. So I don't know what was going on. I'm never the guy to leave. I'm always, let's play one more, right? Yes. Yeah. Something. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We, we can play for four hours, and you will not be the first to quit. No, I'm like, come on, one more. Let's go. Yeah, a little seven in me, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Last night, guys, I'm done. For once, I had enough sense to know my body. I'm like, don't go back out there again. Why are you going to go back? Just go home. Right. Well, look, thanks again for coming. I love you, man. Thanks for sharing your story. Uh, we'll get Christy up here. She can rebut anything she feels like she needs <laughs> to rebut. She can come from the force perspective. And one of these days, I want to get you guys together to tell, because there's so many interesting things about y'all's story. Yeah, absolutely. So, so much heartbreak, but so much yeah. beauty that came out of it, too. I'd love to share that recovery yeah. story. From thanks that for perspective. Yeah, thanks. Uh, guys, thanks for joining us on How's That Working for You? And uh, we will see you next time. Bye.